Welcome to the March 2019 Rehab Cast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Box. Now, this month's Rehab Cast features a great study out of UAB and the Lakeshore Foundation on movement to music and adapted yoga for multiple sclerosis. We're going to be talking with Professor James Rimmer about the study shortly. Now, some of the hottest news in the MS field concerns a form of stem cell treatment that's being studied at Northwestern, Duke, and a variety of international locations. And it's the subject of an ethically dubious pay-to-play form of research, some of which is supported by online crowdfunding campaigns. Recently, promising findings were published in JAMA, where patients underwent a procedure called partial immune ablation, followed by hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. In this procedure, your autologous hematopoietic stem cells are collected, your immune system is suppressed via chemotherapy, and then the stem cells are reintroduced. The new stem cells migrate to the bone marrow and over time can reconstitute the immune system. Some patients have reportedly had to pay upwards of $100,000 to participate in these types of trials, raising important questions about this type of study, including how much that could influence the results. The findings in the JAMA study are impressive, with far fewer cases of MS progression in the stem cell transplant group compared to usual therapy. Now, some of the usual therapies in the trial were older. Disease progression occurred in just three patients in the transplant group and 34 patients in the traditional disease-modifying therapy group with a medium follow-up of two years. But what further clouds the study, though, is an FDA warning letter sent to lead author Dr. Bird of Northwestern. Uh, As reported on the website Vox.com, the letter contains a long list of violations of the federal regulations that govern research involving humans. These include the failure to report deaths to the FDA in one study in a timely manner. Dr. Burt says this violation did not relate to the MS study, but another lupus study. Uh, The failure to evaluate the side effects that patients experienced and to report them to the FDA on time and the failure to do interim analysis of study data as promised in a study plan. Now, shockingly, JAMA says it didn't know about the letter at the time of submission, acceptance, or publication. They only learned about it after publication. Now, here's a study for which there are no FDA warning letters, to say the least. Now, turning to our interview straight from the pages of the archives. So joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Professor James Remmer. Dr. Remmer uh, is a professor in the School of Health Professions uh, at UAB in Birmingham, uh, and he is also a director of uh, research at the Lakeshore Foundation, where he's an endowed chair in health promotion and rehabilitation sciences. Dr. Remmer, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. The, the partnership uh, between uh, UAB, uh, which has its own uh, rehab hospital, and the private uh, Lakeshore Hospital and uh, Foundation, uh, tell us about that for, uh, for a minute and how that has blossomed over time. Yeah, well, about 20 years ago, uh, the foundation had a large endowment, and it decided that they needed to pivot from focusing most of its work on the rehabilitation end of the continuum and more towards uh, what they referred to as the transition from rehabilitation into wellness. And so they decided to build a 100,000 square foot, square feet uh, 
health and fitness facility that includes uh, a number of different uh, uh, exercise areas, two indoor swimming pools, one heated at 95 degrees. Uh, they have uh, three professional-sized basketball courts, so we, we get several tournaments a year. We host several tournaments a year, wheelchair basketball tournaments. Um, they also have a, you know an indoor track. Uh, they have a fitness center. Uh, they have a, uh, a shooting range. We have military programs here, so shooting is a, is a big part of that program. Um, and we're adding a new addition this year, a 16,000-square-foot addition, which will include a culinary lab or kitchen, uh, mindfulness room, and a clinical exercise room. So the, the foundation is primarily focused on providing people with disabilities in the Birmingham community and sometimes nationally with um, state-of-the-art exercise wellness programs. Wow, uh, that does sound pretty impressive. Now, you were uh, recruited down from Illinois uh, in 2012 uh, to come uh, be this uh, new endowed chair for this partnership. Uh, and there I, I see you uh, had, a, had a career. You, were, uh, you worked with, uh, uh, you were based in uh, Champaign, but also had uh, work with uh, the Rehab Institute of Chicago and uh, were a professor uh, uh, there. And uh, your, your career extends for uh, a long period, you've been involved in a lot of different things with regards to uh, disability research over time. It started out as a uh, PhD in uh, uh, kinesiology. Can you tell us a little bit about the kind of arc of your of your career? So I started as a, an adapted physical education teacher in the public school system back in the mid '70s in New York City, and there became very interested in um, as as an exercise physiology major, kinesiology student, I became very intrigued with uh, the health and function of people with disabilities. And uh, interestingly, uh, physical therapy was an option at that time, but I, I was really more on the side of wanting to do things in the community. I felt that sports and recreation were critical pieces that were missing in the lives of these young children that I was working with. So I went on and got a master's degree in adapted physical activity, and then from there went on for a PhD in exercise science with a specialization in disability. And in those days, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was probably uh, maybe five or six people in the world who really tried to mesh or combine exercise physiology with disability. In fact, some of the early research, um, I spent a lot of time in a library with a lot of quarters trying to uh, Xerox anything those days it was called Xerox, today it's photocopy. But I would Xerox anything I could get my hands on related to disability and exercise. And of course, one of the biggest uh, countries to work in this area uh, was Sweden. And there was a lot of interesting work on children with cerebral palsy. So I started off, you know, really Xeroxing those articles. And then from there, you know, my interest grew into looking more at how, to, how does the built environment uh, really affect people with disabilities. So instead of displacing you know, all of my focus on, you know, looking at specific clinical measures associated with an intervention. Um, you know, I decided that it was really critical for us to start to look at how can we make the community more universally accessible so people could participate in sports recreation, you know, with it, where, wherever they chose to do so. And as uh, the American population is is uh, living longer and incurring more disability o over the over the course of the the lifespan, this this uh, type of uh, research and its implementation becomes that much more important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the Venn diagram, which shows you know there's a real overlap of what people with disabilities need, uh, 
um, uh, compared to what the aging or older adult population needs. So we really see this now starting to blossom. Things like complete streets, a little bit longer time uh, traffic lights are a little bit longer, more sensitive to the gate patterns or the slower gate patterns of people. And uh, we're starting to see uh, a little bit more in the fitness industry and being more conscious about uh, trying to uh, purchase equipment that has a, a few more elements of accessibility. So this is a good time for people with disabilities because of the aging demographics. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the specific uh, disability at hand here uh, in this study is, of course, multiple sclerosis. Uh, and that is a population for which you and the Lakeshore Foundation, I see, have acquired a PCORI grant uh, that you're working on. Uh, I, I gather this study in and of itself may not be directly related to the PCORI grant, uh, which seems to be more telehealth uh, related, and this is more in person, although I could see that you might want to transition this to a telehealth uh, model in, in future. Is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. So our PCORI grant is a telerehabilitation program that was created by an occupational therapist, and it has three components. It has uh, a section on Pilates, uh, then there's a second section on yoga, adapted yoga exercise, and the third sec section um, is dual tasking activities. And so the program is a 20-session uh, intervention really, really nicely laid out professional videography. And what we do is we give people tablets, PCs, people with MS, and they go home and they uh, have a tablet and a tablet stand, and then they do these exercises over a 12-week uh, period, uh, two days a week for the first eight weeks, and then once a week for the last four weeks. And we're comparing that uh, to an on-site program. So the other group of participants they actually go to a clinic, a physical therapy clinic, where they get the same exact intervention by a therapist. And so our proposal or a hypothesis is that because there are so many challenges associated with getting to clinics for people with MS, particularly those who can no longer drive or uh, those who have difficulty leaving the home because they have a higher level of impairment, you know, the hypothesis is that we'll see no difference in the outcomes between people who do the tele-rehab program compared to those who uh, receive the intervention in a clinical setting. The project, the study that uh, we're discussing today that was published in Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation has a little different twist. Instead of it being you know, a little bit more on the rehab side, tele-rehab side, this is more of an in-person uh, program that's based and created by a group of dancers who took the elements of dance adapted it in terms of its tempo and its rhythm and timing and things of this nature, and then created a three-day-a-week, 12-week program, which is being offered on site. And so, yes, this specific study, it's entitled uh, The Effects of M2M, or Movement to Music, and an Adapted Yoga on Physical and Psychosocial Outcomes in People with Multiple Sclerosis. Uh, and I suppose you all are emphasizing their movement to music rather than dancing in particular, uh, because, you know, we're, we're not necessarily uh, talking about choreographed uh, uh, dances or ballroom dancing in particular. If folks may have some significant uh, disabilities. Uh, you do talk about the fact that there is, uh, you know, a burgeoning literature on music therapy and a variety of conditions. And in fact, we here on the rehab cast 
have previously discussed uh, some forms of uh, music therapy, even kind of some Irish uh, step dancing uh, for Parkinson's disease, uh, which shows uh, promising uh, results. And uh, so it's not surprising to see it, it translated into, into some other uh, neurodegenerative uh, conditions. Um, so uh, had, had you and your group uh, uh, done some, uh, some music therapy type uh, interventions in, in this and other populations before this study? No, you know, th- this was actually pub- uh, uh, funded in 2013 from NIDLER, the National Institute uh-huh. on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. And, you know, the concept came about because, uh, well, a couple of reasons. One, my wife is a, a dancer. Um, you know, she still takes dance, even in her 60s, uh, ballet classes uh, three days a week. So, you know, my thought was knowing that dance has you know, tremendous uh, uh, potential for creating, uh, a sense of body awareness and body control and of course various health outcomes. And so, uh, we, we began to think about this with a young lady who I think you contacted Dr. Zoe Young, who's out of the country. And she, I found out from her that she was a classical, uh, ballet ballerina in Taiwan and so it, the, the planets came aligned. I, I ended up coming down here from Chicago with my wife. Um, I became very intrigued in how movement and music could be blended in some sort of a fusion so that it could take the elements of classical dance like ballet, uh, modern dance, tap dance, uh, African dance, Latin dance. You know, was there a way to strip out all those elements and then put them back together in a very systematic structure to allow people with disabilities to engage in movement patterns that would be health enhancing. So that was the major thing is how do we strip out the core elements of all movement? Because if you look at movement, whether it's ballet or tap or jazz or modern, you know, they all have different movement patterns. Sometimes it's a hop, sometimes it's a slide, you know, a step, you know, moving the arms in one fashion. Sometimes you move the arms bilaterally, sometimes you move them unilaterally. How do you move with other people? So it it was really intriguing that when uh, Dr. Young came, we sat down and we came up with an acronym called MAPIT, which stands for Modality, Adaptation, Position, Pattern, Equipment, Time, and Tempo. And from that structure, we were able to lay out or strip out several different forms of dance into you know, this particular modality would be good for working on strength versus something else where some activity was being done across the floor, then that would be more aerobic. So that's your modality. The adaptations were, you know, some people are not going to be able to do it standing. Some people aren't going to be able to do it for a long period of time. So it's adapted for the individual. And then we get into the pattern. So the pattern is, you know, are you going to do two sets with the right leg and three sets with the left leg. Are you going to do it standing, sitting? That's the whole pattern of movement. The position is standing, sitting, um, and sometimes a combination of standing, standing with assistance with a ballet bar. You have equipment. Sometimes it's free weights or ankle weights. Sometimes it's just using another type of device that they hold while they're performing the movement. And of course, time and tempo has everything to do with the rhythm. How quickly you know, the cadence, how quickly do they move? So when we stripped this out and came up with this acronym, Map It, we realized that, you know, there were really literally hundreds of different movement patterns that we could tailor to people with specific disabilities. 
The second reason we did it is because we, we, we found that there was a real void in the literature for, for, for activities that were done to music. As you mentioned, you, you know, there are specific uh, disability-specific programs like Parkinson's for dance that is specifically designed for people with Parkinson's. But what we were hoping to do is, is develop a movement-based program with music that would be more interesting and engaging. So just like all of us, when we go out, when I go out and walk or I go for a short run, you know, I don't want to listen to the same music over and over and over again, right? Every couple of weeks I'm uploading, you know, some new tunes on Amazon Prime uh, or Spotify. Well, it's the same way with movement. We, we assume that people are going to really enjoy riding a stationary bike for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way. You know, it's not engaging. It's not interactive. It's not immersive. So we decided that this music was a good way to get people a variety because what you could do is you could keep the same movement patterns, mix them up, and then you could try different music. And with different music, it becomes, again, much more engaging when they participate in the activity. Well, that's great. Yeah, and uh, I suppose there's uh, there's a uh, an addendum here that uh, that outlines uh, some of some of those specific uh, movement patterns and everything that you guys have, have organized as well. Yeah, we have a very comprehensive uh, manual of operating procedures, mm -hmm. and it's all in there. In fact, the good news is that we were just refunded for another five years to translate this study into the YMCA. So now we're working intimately uh, with um, five YMCAs. The study just started uh, last month, and uh, we're going to now translate or move this movement to music program outside of Lakeshore and into the YMCAs. Uh, and of course, the other important thing about this study, which is so often not done, uh, unfortunately, is you know comparing it to some other type of intervention where people spend a similar amount of time with engaged therapists and so forth. So they get all those uh, kind of uh, added benefits of, uh, of the group participation and, and engagement in something uh, versus just you know being entirely on a wait list or, or so forth or and not active at all. And then it makes it very difficult to parse out in these studies, you know, how much is, is really this intervention versus just kind of the what a, all the the additive things that someone gets from from going into a, a group uh, uh, program like this and, and y'all chose uh, adapted yoga which in and of itself has a has a growing literature uh, in rehabilitation and is showing some interesting effects in, in a variety of conditions uh, I suppose and in, in including adaptive yoga um, you know, what was your going in hypothesis? Did you necessarily expect that it was going to be inferior to movement to music? Or, or did you think that you might have some difficulty parsing out the effects there? Well, well you know, we were thinking that we, I'm a big fan of yoga. I think it has enormous potential benefits, particularly for those who have uh, really a lot of joint discomfort from running, any kind of pounding. If, if, if there's any, you know, risk associated with that, people with fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, stroke, you know, adapted, yo uh, adapted yoga is really a great activity. But what I see missing in yoga is, the, is what, what we do so much in exercise physiology. We focus on the aerobic component or the cardiorespiratory component. And so certainly that's what we found in this study is uh, adapted yoga, you know, might be good, you know, for maybe looking at improvements in balance. Um, or even strength, isometric strength. But our major goal here was to look at two primary outcomes, which was one was the timed up and go, which is really a measure of good balance while moving, right? Which we know movement to music, you're moving more than you are in yoga with it, where there's a lot more stationary 
uh, positions. And then the other thing that was significant was the time, um, the six minute walk test really was, you know, showed great improvements. So we like the idea of movement to music complementing yoga, uh, but certainly the literature is quite convincing that people need to do moderate activity at least 30 minutes a day. And movement to music is more on that spectrum. It's really focused on trying to get people to a level of fitness that is part of the U.S. National uh, Physical Activity Guidelines, 30 minutes a day of moderate to uh, moderate physical activity, about 150 minutes a week. This particular project, uh, you know, really does reach that threshold of um, endurance. So y'all, y'all had that good result on the time up and go on the six-minute walk test. Um, there was uh, this other test of the uh, the the so-called five-time sit-to-stand test, and and that one did not. Uh, prove uh, to have a, a significant uh, change. Uh, can you tell me about uh, why y'all included that one as well, that a uh, little bit more uh, endurance perhaps involved there and why you think that wasn't as effective? Yeah, you know, um, I we probably put a lot more emphasis on the aerobic component, of course, which is not strength-oriented, uh, the aerobic side of this. We had a little bit of strength, you know, a lot of muscular endurance. But when you look at the five-time sit-to-stand, it's 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 rock bottom. You have to have enough leg strength to sit and stand, you know, in your chair. So again, it's one of those stationary movements that is is not as receptive to a cardiorespiratory endurance program where you're you're uh, at a lower intensity threshold, but you want those muscles to be activated for a period of time. So a lot of our aerobic activities are ten minutes in length, um, and so there's 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 not a heavy emphasis emphasis on you know, overloading the muscles. Uh, so we think that may be one reason is the focus was not there. I see. The symptom of, of fatigue, which is which is certainly omnipresent in MS, um, more or less, and as y'all point out, multifactorial. Um, that that symptom of itself didn't really show a relationship uh, with what with what group uh, people were in. Uh, I suppose maybe that wasn't too much of a surprise. No, it wasn't. You know, once again, uh, you know, our focus was more on the cardio side of it, and we added these secondary measures with the. You know, again, once once again, the assumption that if someone has better cardiorespiratory endurance, uh, you know, they're going to have a lower fatigue score. But it uh, it it you know it it didn't have any relationship in this study to you know to lower on fatigue. Now, uh, the adapted yoga, um, no effect on on any of the measures that that were significant. Uh, have there been other uh, yoga studies in, in MS, to your knowledge, and do they also have kind of, of null effects? No, actually, uh, on the contrary, there are a few studies that have been done with people with MS, and you know, most of the studies that I've read have shown positive outcomes. Again, mostly on improving balance and strength. I don't, I, I, I don't think I've seen very much. Uh, literature on cardiorespiratory improvements through yoga, but certainly strength and balance uh, have 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 improved. So uh, again, we don't want to, you know, um, I'm hoping that as a result of this study, people don't become dissuaded about using adapted yoga for people with MS. I think it's a great uh, intervention. But if you're focused on, you know, really looking at the cardiac and the respiratory system or circulatory system, and you're trying to get more movement uh, across a period of time, like seven, eight, nine, ten minutes, then you know you've got to you've got to develop movement patterns that people can do for that length of time. Right. 
Uh, and, and of course, uh, the, the types of improvements that, uh, that you're seeing, uh, walking, tied up and go and so forth, those really do, trans, uh, and again, not to denigrate uh, yoga and its balance effects that may help prevent a fall or so forth, but, but really uh, that increased mobility is something that's going to uh, help uh, you know, prevent uh, further advancement of disability. Precisely. And, you know, when you look at the, you know, the, the videos of movement to music, it does exactly that. There's a lot of stepping you know, you got to step to the right, step to the left. There's a little bit of even that aerobic dance component, you know, where you might be uh, using a certain pattern, you know, two steps to the right, two steps with the opposite leg backwards. Now turn around. Now let's go forward. So there's a lot of that where they've got to really process what the pattern is. The teacher, you know, the instructor is doing it with them. But you've got to do this with a certain time and tempo. So there's a lot of central processing, you know, executive function, thinking about which leg do I need to move? Do I move right? Do I move left? How many times do I move forward versus backwards, et cetera, et cetera. So we think that because we had such a predominance of focus on the cardiorespiratory health that we probably, you know, didn't focus as much on trying to, you know, really see significant improvements in some of the other measures. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, looking at some of your study uh, limitations in terms of kind of not knowing exactly what people were in the wait list control and stuff were doing and that type of thing, one one thing that crossed my mind, which uh, uh, seems to maybe ebb and flow with the rehab literature, is some form of, of at-home tracking through you know, actigraphy and pedometers and things like that. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about how much that type of information could augment a study like this in order to kind of further break down who it seems to be benefiting most or if people's activity levels overall are improving over the study uh, and that type of thing. Yeah, I, I, I do think that if we're going to use these short-term interventions, you know, to recommend long-term usage and benefits, then we do have to have a better longer period of time. Our, our focus here was more on the clinical end of it. You know, we had, we had to look at, you know, the usability of the movement to music structure, you know, the three days a week. You know, we, we did learn that, you know, on average, we only hit about a 66% attendance rate. So on average, participants came two to three days a week, which in some respects is, 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 is a fairly good finding because, you know, you can do it for 24 versus 36 sessions. And theoretically, you know, you should still see uh, quantitatively almost the same level of improvement that we saw with a three-day-a-week program because, as you know, with multiple sclerosis, you know, when they don't feel well on, a, on any given day, there's a tendency to not come to class. So you have to expect that. Now, what we have done since then is this weightless control group, which was reported in the study, we have offered them a one-on-one -on -one home based training program. So the third leg of this study was to look at the potential of, uh, the potential of using the movement to music at home. And so we're just getting ready to finish that study. It should be done sometime in April. And it's a, again, a 12 week study, 36 sessions, the same exact movement patterns, but instead of the participant having to come in, they work through a um, sort of like a go-to meeting platform and they get one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, training 
with an instructor. And I'm very, I, I just can't wait to look at that data because there are a lot of unique features. It's one-on-one -on -one training. Uh, you know, the session attendance is much better because even if they don't feel well, they don't have to leave the house. So they usually are compliant and they, and they don't like missing because they know that this is, you know, their personal trainer. Um, so we, we did, um, you know, use that as our third study. Our first study was just tracking longitudinally health outcomes of people with multiple sclerosis and a couple of other disability groups. And then the second study was this clinical study that was just published. And then the third study, which we're finishing up, is really this home-based tele-exercise program. Now, are you uh, having much success, or is it is it part of the mission of the Lakeshore Foundation to kind of implement some of these uh, research findings? It would seem to me that perhaps uh, uh, a movement to music class incorporating that as part of what this you know grand new center does might 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 be a relatively minimal uh, cost. There's probably a variety of other types of classes and programming going on there. Uh, uh, do you all have that type of translational? relationship with in terms of kind of how the how the community programming is working yeah well you hit a sweet spot there because uh they as soon as we reported the findings to the lakeshore foundation they immediately wanted to set up a new class a new program oh, right mm -hmm. um, however right after that uh study was published you know we heard about this new five-year project this translational mm -hmm. study of taking it into the why so because as you know there's always a limitation in how many participants you can get. Um, you know, we, we kind of asked Lakeshore if it was okay if we could hold off since we are going to be running the study at Lakeshore for the first year and a half, two years while we train the YMCA instructors to do so. So we're going to be see. using their space anyway. We'll be randomizing uh, groups of, uh, of people who could be members uh, as long as they meet the eligibility criteria, Lakeshore members. Um, so... If we didn't get funded, this would have already been institutionalized, but now with this new funding, we want to get it titrated right down to the level of science that will allow us to know exactly what is going on um, you know, in, in this particular intervention group. The other thing we're doing is we're expanding the group of people, and rather than focusing just on a specific disability per class, we learned from the last iteration that you know, some in some respects, it may be easy to do this by function. So this particular new study is we've got uh, three groups of people. One group will be doing only sitting, movement to music, activities sitting. One group will have the standing and sitting combination. And then we've also identified that there's such a large stroke population, we're going to have a specific movement to music class just for people with hemiparesis, right or left side. Well, that's really great to hear, and I'm glad you all have such support from the Lakeshore Foundation. They're they're uh, eager to take the ball and, and run with it, uh, and uh, it looks like, yeah, this is going to happen uh, one way or another. Well, well, hopefully uh, a lot of other folks are interested now, having heard this, this episode of the podcast, and of course, check out the paper itself uh, uh, in this month's archives. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Remmer, I'm glad to hear that uh, that that uh, you're you're drilling down further, and uh, and we're really going to get uh, to the meat of the matter in terms of uh, uh, for which uh, populations this is most impactful, and which which elements of it, and and so forth. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. And that's it for this month's rehab cast from the archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation. Please join us again next month for another fascinating study and in-depth interview ripped straight from the pages of the archives.
Join us in Chicago this fall for ACRM 2019, the largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation conference in the world. The main core conference and pre-conference instructional courses deliver six jam-packed days of evidence-based educational content for the whole rehab team, as well as patients and their caregivers. Please visit acrm.org for more information and follow hashtag ACRM2019.